Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of The George Sanders Show. When you think of summertime, which we are in the, the middle of it right now, the thick of it, smack dab in July here, uh, I know the first thing that comes to my mind is Sweden. Um, as it probably is. Yeah. For you too, Sean. Um, and so we decided today to combine those two, you know, it's like peanut butter and sandwiches. Those two go together so well. So today we're talking about two Swedish films, uh, one summer interlude tying in with the whole theme, uh, from probably the most famous Swedish director of all time, uh, Ingmar Bergman, uh, and talking about songs from the second floor uh, the first in uh, the trilogy by Roy Anderson, uh, his his most recent one, a pigeon sat on a bench, or a, I always say bench, sat on a branch reflecting on existence, uh, opens here next weekend. Um, so we'll get to the first film of that series and uh, all that stuff too. We'll talk about essential Swedish film, we're going to pick our favorite and uh, talk about Ingrid Bergman because we love her to death and she celebrates a hundredth birthday this year, um, sharing it with somebody close to us. <laughs> uh, and we're actually going to resurrect the whole news thing for once, uh, because we think it's pertinent for the show. Uh, news happened, sad news happened. And this being our, our Swedish show, it's important to talk about sad things. <laughs> right. Sad, uh, sad things and pretty ladies. That's Sweden. That's the George Sanders show. <laughs> and we should take off. You know, I think we've had reasonably competent up for a while on the uh, on the blog page. The sad things and pretty ladies. Yeah, I think people should. <laughs> you know, I put out the the uh, the beacon. You know, how long was that? Like a year ago. It's been a while since we had some iTunes reviews. So. Yeah. Uh. So if anybody's listening to the show and and they have you know a, a minute of their time. Uh, and they want to do us a favor, they can go on there and rate the show and say something. What was this? I always forgot what the phrase was. Sad, sad, sad things, things and pretty and, ladies. And pretty ladies. That's the George yeah. Sanders show. Yeah. We should make t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> one, one side reasonably confident, the other side sad things and pretty ladies. Right. Well, yeah. I think, I, yeah, I think you and I represent those two ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't ascribe it to either yeah. of us, but yeah. you know. <laughs> we'll let the audience sort out for themselves which of us is the pretty lady and which is the sad thing. Right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, let's let's uh, hear a clip from this Bergman joint uh, summer interlude. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, 
Okay, that's a clip from Ingmar Bergman's 1951 film Summer Interlude. Uh, the film is about a ballerina who, uh, the night before a premiere of Swan Lake, um, she gets a um, delivery, a package that in, that has the diary of a former lover, and it kind of sends her off into this reverie um, where she kind of, you know, thinks back upon the past and that relationship that she had. And she takes off for a day trip to um, this island where she spent this summer with this, this boy. Um, and thinking about this kind of, it's kind of like their first love and, and all that stuff. And, and she's thinking about life that what has happened since then and how life is horrible and what happened with their relationship and what happened to him and, you know, specifically, and we can dive into that, later on uh it's all very lonely and sad <laughs> uh it's an early film from bergman uh kind of one of the first ones to really kind of tap into what he you know considered his personal style i think he said something along those lines with this film where he felt like his voice really came through on this one um and you know he had a long storied career that I, i'm sure we'll touch upon also in our discussion here um so my question to you, I, I know you're not a fan. You're not, a, I, I should say you're not a decided fan. You're not, you're not, uh, feet aren't firmly planted on Bergman territory. Is that correct, Sean? Uh, that is a fair assessment. <laughs> does, uh, does Summer Interlude change your opinion at all on, on the works of Bergman? Uh, does it shade anything in for you? Does it give you a fresh perspective? Or is it more of the same kind of dour? depressing Swedish stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's... I, I want to like this movie, but I don't. <laughs> and I feel like that with, like, a lot of Bergman. Like, like there... It seems like, like it's almost a movie that I could really, really like. I mean, it's about a ballerina, which right there... I love Pretty movies ladies. about I love movies about ballerinas, uh, but there's I love movies about young love. I don't mind you know movies about you know tragic uh, you know pasts haunting the present. There's nothing about this movie that is like intrinsically something that I would not like, but yet there there it is. It's just it's just kind of. I don't know. It's just, it's, there's something off about it. There's something that, that just rubs me the wrong way. And I, as I, as you were, you were talking the description, I, I was thinking about kind of the pacing of this film. This movie is 96 minutes long. I'm looking here at the page, but it feels like it's three hours long and not in the way that like, uh, it's a film that's capturing like the rhythm of everyday life because it's not that. It's that that every moment is kind of attenuated and given this kind of weight and lengthiness that it doesn't really deserve. Like it's not, I don't mind a slow movie like a, a Taiwanese new wave film. So those movies move very slow. They're glacially paced, but the, the pacing, the actions in them feel naturalistic. Nothing in, in this movie feels natural to me. Like it's all theatrically staged to give it an importance that it doesn't necessarily have. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah. So like the ideas behind it are fine. The performances are fine. The story is fine. It looks fine, but it just, if it, it's like, it was like a slog for me to watch this. Yeah. And, um, and I get that with, with a lot of Bergman. Like it, it's like, it's work to watch mm-hmm. this movie. Whereas so something like got... Linda, Linda, Linda doesn't move any faster, mm-hmm. but is so much more fun. Uh, so not to, you know, to generalize a little bit. So to, for you, Bergman is kind of like the layman's conception of what like a foreign or an art film is, is where it, it is, like you said, work and it's, it's kind of tedious and, and, you know, a chore. Is yeah. That, is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, like I, I, I feel bored watching Bergman in a way that I rarely feel watching movies. Yeah. um yeah unfortunately you know i wish i could disagree with you i do i do disagree with a a couple of your points i didn't actually feel the. i didn't feel like this was um the pacing was too bad like i didn't i didn't feel like this was three hours long It, it it moved along fairly fine for me um but yeah unfortunately by the time i got to the end and i want to talk about some of the stuff i do like here in just a second but by the time i got to the end i felt um I felt a little cheated by this movie and um and I have a similar opinion about Bergman. I'm not uh, a huge, you know, uh, fan by any stretch of the imagination. I've only seen a handful of, of his films and, I, and some of them I really like, you know, it's been over a decade since I saw Fanny and Alexander, but I really enjoyed that. Um I've always been kind of lukewarm on Seventh Seal, like I it's one of those things that I can appreciate, but I don't like, you know, I don't put up there with the other movies that are usually lumped in with it. Um including other ones that start with the number seven. Um, and, you know, so, so yeah, I'm, it kind of hit or miss for me. I'm, I'm fairly lukewarm. I try to give Bergman a chance every couple of years, and I, and I more often than not, I have this experience. Um, but with this one, I was actually really surprised by the first 10 or 15 minutes. I, it moves, it's very fleet, and it, and it, and it moves, um, it's kind of airy, and, and, and it has this kind of backstage banter going on between the ballerinas and the and the the people that work um in the theater there's a uh promoter that's there who's kicking out a newspaper man or whatever and it actually kind of felt like a, a like Hollywoody. A, it felt like an actual movie yeah it did it really did for the first like 15 minutes and i was like yeah. this is kind of fun and it really felt uh and this is you know not a charitable thing to say but it felt like not Bergman in a good way. Like it, it I was like, Oh wow. Like I'm kind of into this. And the, there were some good quippy lines. Uh, particularly there's a, a ballerina who kind of shares the dressing room with uh, Marie, the main character who uh, she's got a cigarette in her mouth and she's kind of making these snide remarks about the profession that they work in and, and how, you know, they're, they've been doing it for so long and they're about to be cast off and blah, blah, blah. And, and just that, kind of that, world weariness uh coupled with the the sight of uh, you know a ballerina in a tutu and she's got the cigarette hanging out of her mouth but she's like washing her you know sore feet and stuff uh i was really into that and i was like this is this is gonna be pretty cool uh and then yeah unfortunately then it then it kind of takes that turn where it kind of becomes more conventionally melodramatic and um and and even that stuff for the beginning part of it I was kind of on board with, like I, like you said, the, the kind of 
reflecting on past loves thing and stuff is is interesting and and we can all kind of tap into that um i just felt that the execution of it um in certain respects uh hindered it i i thought that for one this boy that um we've you know we we learn more about and as we in the flashbacks uh henrik or whatever he uh he's kind of a sap like like well he's he's really lacking in personality yeah and it's like i don't see the appeal of this cat and then well he's very handsome he's a cute guy sure but like um but yeah but you never see that spark between the two of them that would that would indicate that the, that this would be something that would cause her so much grief further down the line um well and the the story is just it's so not interesting like it's it's young love that ended yeah you know i did a little <laughs> little research beforehand and and apparently this is based on something that actually happened to bergman himself uh the the genders were reversed but he had a summer fling um with a woman who then ended up uh contracting polio and dying um and so it, i think he wrote a short story about it prior to this and then he and he made it maybe a short film or something and then he kind of told it once more with this story and and that's fine i mean, yeah, I mean there's not really anything it seems like there should be something dramatically interesting there or something insightful about human nature but it's really not because it's you were young and you were in love and then it ended and now you're old and you have to like move past that like there's nothing really insightful about that. It's very surface level in its, uh, you know, depiction of the human relationship and the way that we deal with our past. Like there's, he doesn't do anything with that material. Well, and unfortunately, not only does he not, when he does do something with it, it's, it handicaps the, like it makes it worse. Like when we, when we get to the scene, it, uh, it, well, okay, a couple of things. First of all, this movie, the emotions uh, kind of turn on a dime, and and we'll dive into the 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 main moment when that happens here in a second. But um, you know, there there are like scenes with the two of them where it's like one set, literally, literally from like second to second, it's like they're arguing with each other, and then oh, now we're gonna make love. <laughs> like I was like, what is going on here? Um, and then it goes to well, this... it it ma- that makes sense if you remember that the the girl is 15 years old when the love affair is happening. Yeah, well, we'll we could talk about the uncle and all that stuff too in a second if we want, but um but then unfortunately you want to you want to build to this kind of tragedy, right? If you really want this to have some sort of emotional impact, but the scene where he I, I mean, we're just going to spoil it because what the hell, but uh where he ends up ha- uh <laughs> He, he dives off of a cliff, you know, he's going to go swimming mm-hmm. and he ends up breaking his back. Um, and it, unfortunately that is like the, the worst way of, 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 of kind of coming to that climax for me. Like it, it really cheapens the whole thing. And, and if they had done something less dramatic, it may have had more of an impact than, um, like him getting polio. Yeah, you know, polio for everybody, you know. Um, but for some, or like, how about you know, just getting hit by a car? Yeah, sure. You're just crossing the street, bam. And uh, yeah, but unfortunately, then you know, it, it, it's really ham-handed uh, that section, and um, which which just 
hurts the whole thing. And then after that, once that the tragedy strikes, then I lost all hope for this movie. Like I said, I was I was I, I really fluctuated as this thing went on. Like I was I was really high on it in the beginning, and then by the end, it just drove itself into the ground. Uh, when after he dies. The first thing that came to my mind, we all know I I don't like people very much, but you know, I love my dog. My first thought is what what's going to happen to this guy's dog cuz he's he's seen throughout the movie. Basically, the only thing we know about this guy is he's got this dog that hangs out with him all the time. Like there's really no shadings to his character whatsoever. He's just kind of this pretty boy um with not much of a backstory and who's been stalking a 15-year-old ballerina. Right. Uh, but he's got this dog who's really cool and, and cute and his name is Gruffman and, and he's adorable. And so first thought, seriously, first thought, what's going to happen to this dog when he dies? Is she going to take the dog in? Is going to, you know, leave it for the aunt or whatever? And she says spoiler. to her uncle, spoiler, spoiler alert, she <laughs> says, you know, the dog's going to be really sad now that he's gone. Can you take it out back and shoot it? And I'm like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> Like, oh, I'm just going to make this decision for this dog here and end its life because my boyfriend died. Uh, I was, oh, I, I, like, that just pissed me off. Uh, and then last but not least, the here's the real spoiler thing. So the movie ends, or, you know, the, the kind of uh, reverie that she's having ends. She goes back. She has this, uh, in the dressing room again, she has this kind of, you know, dramatic confrontation with where her life is right now. And, and she realizes that, you know, she spent her whole life as a ballerina and it's led to, you know, nothing. It's going to, it's over very soon because she's about to age out and, and she's weeping there. And, and then it cuts to the next day and she's, she's like, I feel like I just want to, I want to, I want to say the quote in, in full, but she basically says, I feel like I want to cry for weeks on end. Actually, now that I think, or why can't I cry? Oh, because deep down I'm actually happy. And then she's, and then the movie's over. And it's like, what? The, why did I just watch this? <laughs> like, what? The hell was that? That that reminds me of the the ending of of uh, Robert Brisson's Pickpocket, which which you also hate. I'm and also I actually, decidedly not a fan of. I I I really like that ending, but but uh, yeah. This one, it's, I, such, it's a cop out. Well, no, it's like uh, I, know, I know, I know what it's going she's for. She's like, I, she's like, I, I was sad and emotionless, and then I remembered, you know, this horrible thing that happened in my youth, and I had forgotten all about this guy, and then I'm sad, and now I can be happy again and go off with my current boyfriend. Yeah, but but it, but it makes the the ninety minutes preceding that feel like an utter waste of time. Well, yeah, I'm not going to disagree that. <laughs> I do. I do think that uh, that the 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 woman who plays the the lead, uh, uh, my Britt Nilsson, I, I think she's really good. She is very good. I, she's got a she, she she's she actually modulates her performance pretty well between the current day where she's supposed to be thirteen years older, mm-hmm. um, and and then the kind of uh, pie eyed, you know, naive, you know, fifteen year old. Yeah. You know. Yeah. She does a very good job. I agree. Yeah. Uh, but but other than that, uh, yeah, like the creepy uncle is just just a, a, like a parody of the creepy uncle in a movie. The 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 boy that she's in love with is just totally bland. Was in uh, uh, Burger Momsten. 
Yeah. No, I am not, yeah. not a fan. Just didn't, uh, didn't connect. Yeah. This, uh, I kept thinking about how much better the Eric Romer version of the story would be. And I don't think that means anything to you because you haven't seen any Eric Romer movies. I have seen have. Eric. Uh, I have. And we will be, spoiler alert, we'll be talking about Eric Romer on the next show. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I kept thinking of, of Pauline at the Beach and how much better a movie that is about young love in the summer than this one is. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so in, in terms of Bergman, what... I like I re- I really like Seven Sam Seven Seal and uh, it was one of the first like foreign language movies I ever saw and I really liked it then and I really like it now like the last time I watched it was uh, when when Bergman died uh, was that five years ago six years ago yeah and it it holds up really well it's got it's got something that that this film. And every other Bergman that I've seen uh, does not have, which is that it's funny. And well, and that's what you know. This one, I, I was like, oh, this is you know the beginning. I was like, I was laughing actually in the beginning. I was like, we might be in for some of that, but no, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and you know, how do you how do you make a movie that is is for eighty percent of its running time about kids in falling in love for the first time and not have it be fun? Yeah, I just I don't understand that at all. But but uh, a seven seal alike. Uh, have you seen Sawdust and Tinsel? I haven't. I've seen Persona and Cries and Whispers. Uh, Sawdust and Tinsel's uh, just a couple years later than this one is nineteen fifty three, mm-hmm. and um, I watched it a couple years ago, and it, it's totally bleak and depressing and sad mm-hmm. and and stuff. But it sustains a more genuine kind of you know feeling through the whole thing it, it, it i and it's it's much more interesting it's set in the circus and stuff that's probably why i like it. i like circuses it's i mean <laughs> i like you know you like circus movies, movies. i like ballet movies you like circus movies yeah you, you know it, i've seen uh, i've seen smiles of a summer night which is ostensibly a comedy uh, i did not think it was funny at all so yeah yeah i think that's it for for bergman and me i just you're done Wiping your hands. Well, no, I mean, I, I won't. I won't swear off Bergman in the way that I have with like Steven Soderbergh, like because he doesn't. He doesn't make me mad, right? In in the way that that somebody like that does, or like Michael Haneke, but he just is. There's just something missing. I just I don't. So so, but yeah. you you are a fan. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say unabashed, but you're, you're a fan of Woody Allen, who is. Uh, an avowed Bergman, you know, accolade and has, has recycled Bergman plots time and again. And so do you think Woody Allen's injection of comedy is, is, uh, is what's lacking? That's what's lacking the Bergman stuff, but then it works when, when Woody does it. Yeah. Really the only Bergman Bergman esque Woody Allen film that I, that I even like at all is, uh, is crimes and misdemeanors. And for that one, I I really only like the, the the misdemeanors part, the the funny part. Like the more the more serious Woody Allen gets, the like the less interested I become. Yeah, well, I understand. For that. for a lot of the same reason, like I just I just don't think he has as as I don't think his insights are as interesting as he seems to think they are. Right. Or as the movie seems to want me to think they are. If that makes sense. It makes sense. I hear you. 
So yeah, well, and without and without uh, and I don't need you know you know profound philosophical insights in order to enjoy a movie, but I need but I need something. And if the movie doesn't have, you know, like a, a feel for real life or you know something to to hook me, then just pseudo insights are not. I enough. did like her little cabin on the top of that hill, looking on the water. This like tiny house that she lives in yeah. in the summer. That was cute. Yeah. Yeah. So Sweden looks very nice in the summer. That's something. It does in in black and white. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you don't want to see it in color, my friend. Well, I think we'll get to that with our Roy Anderson film coming yeah, up. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that's our discussion of summer interlude. Um, you know, he's got a lot of movies with summer in the title. You know, we mm-hmm. were t- talked about summer with Monica uh, possibly doing that one or scenes from a summer night. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't feel like I need to, you know, spend my summer with uh, Bergman a- anymore. But yeah. uh, we're we're the worst. So now we're gonna hear a little bit of Swedish music. Uh, but we have already played Robin on the show previously uh, when we did our Ingeborg Home episode, um, which was a Swedish movie we both liked. Yeah, we from, did from Victor Seastrom. We are we are not uh, anti-Swede. As you will find out in the next segment when we talk about our essential Swedish movie. True. We, we, we both came up with a Swedish film that we want other people to see. And it was uh, hard to pick one <laughs> because there are several that we like. There you go. <laughs> um, so Robin is disqualified because we've already played her. But I want to give a shout out to her because I love her to death. Um, mm. But we are going to listen to some, uh, some good Swedish pop. Here's the best uh, Swedish pop band ever. Here's Ava with uh, Fernando.
Okay, thank you, Abba. Uh, like you said at the start of the show, we're going to resurrect the news segment so that we could report on a couple of untimely deaths. Uh, the, the first of which uh, just happened this morning. Uh, the great actor Omar Sharif died, and that's sad. I'm very sad about that. We, we just talked about him uh, a couple months ago in Dr. Jibago, and I really liked Omar Sharif. Me too. Uh, he he was a, a great actor. He was a great movie star, and he really knew a lot about Bridge. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he's a very you know. I I just I just watched um, Roman Holiday the other day, hmm. and uh, and and it was kind of interesting to watch it because clearly Gregory Peck's role is supposed to be Cary Grant. And I think mm. that's actually true. I think that's like a bit of trivia that was written for Cary Grant or something like that. And I was thinking about actors that kind of, um, you know, can substitute for one another. Um, and then there are those people that are kind of just singular presences. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say Gregory Peck can substitute for Cary Grant because Cary Grant is Cary Grant. But Omar Sharif is one of those singular talents um, that just he's Omar Sharif. You know what I mean? Like, there's no, there's, I can't think of somebody. I can't compare him to anybody because I think, he. I think the only one that comes really close is Marcello Mastrioni. And I think they both have like uh, because they're both not uh, American. Their English isn't their first language. They have that kind of international man of mystery vibe to them, and they're both incredibly handsome. I was about charming. to say, handsome devils to boot. Uh, that's that's fair. Um, but yeah, Omar Sharif, I mean, what a great, you know, uh, string of, you know, performances from him, um, you know, throughout his career, his lengthy career. And, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's a bummer. I mean, he lived a long, full life, you know, 89 years old. Um, but anytime someone like that goes, it's, it's kind of rough. Yeah. And the other, the other, uh, depressing loss this week was, uh, one of our, our very first news items on the George Sanders show back uh, over two years ago now was the uh, the launch of the website The Dissolve, which uh, featured work by a number of writers who had been at the Onions AV Club that we were fans of then, and then they went and formed their own website under the, the Pitchfork umbrella. And it was a website that, that we both liked. We, we read it. We continued to like the critics that worked there. And uh, you hated the website, though. You I didn't. I did not care for the website design. I found it very difficult to read. But that is because I am an old man, and I learned to read the internet on blogspots. So anything that's more graphically advanced than that gives me a headache. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I liked the criticism. They just did. Uh, they just did the killer. Speaking of, of John Woo, as their movie of the week, and in you know in the same week. Uh, IndieWire published a, a god-awful, terrible review of uh, City on Fire, the Ringo Lam film, that was just as uninformed bullshit as you will see on the internet. Uh-huh. And whereas The Dissolve had really insightful and interesting things to say about the killer that, you know... Like something new to say and something... Yeah, some, yeah, something new and original that wasn't just... It wasn't just, you know, fanboy nonsense and it wasn't condescending and it was informed and intelligent and it is a website that is no longer there while IndieWire continues to... Flourish. Flourish. 
So that has me kind of, that has everyone. It has me also bummed about the state of film criticism today. It is surprising because, and you know, I want to know, I, I want to know specifics really about this because um, it seemed like the Dissolve was one of the more popular film websites on the internet. And I know there's been a lot of talk about the fact that, you know, they weren't uh, cross-pollinating by talking about TV and, and all that other stuff. But it seemed like they had a very loyal um, and su- to me, it seemed fairly large readership. Um, but the one thing I noticed whenever I went over there was there were never any like there was no real monetization going on there, which is nice for for a person coming to it. You know, like you're not inundated with a lot of banner ads or pop-ups or anything like that that turns you off you know like i mean as soon as i go to a website and they have a banner or a pop-up ad i i just leave that website but um but the only time i remember seeing ads on there they were for pitchfork stuff and i'm like there had to have been advert advertisers that wanted to get in a piece of that pie um but maybe I'm wrong. I don't. I mean, it's all speculation at this point. But um, yeah, I mean, as I understand it, the the problem wasn't like the the number of readers. It was just that uh, they couldn't monetize that readership. Yeah, which is weird to me. I don't. <laughs> but, I don't know. I mean, I think I think kind of the on the scale of what they were wanting to do, and the fact that they were paying, you know, salaries and insurance to their writers means that there was so much overhead on their website that you know there wasn't the advertising revenue there to pay for that and it's really just not tenable to pay for a film criticism website with ad revenue that if it's going to pay its writers so you do you think have they, had they done like a uh, a paywall uh subscription service kind of thing do you think that they I mean, they would clearly be losing a lot of readership that way. But do you think they would have compensated um, financially by, you know, I mean, it all depends on how much they would charge, I guess. But I'm increasingly pessimistic that film criticism as a career is a thing that will exist. I think, uh, I think, I think, uh, I think not just film criticism, but just criticism in general as an adjunct of journalism, as in, you know, something that you can make a middle-class wage in doing, it was an anomaly of the mid 20th century. And I don't think it will return. Uh, I agree. I, you know, I think, you know, the democratization, you know, inherent in, you know, internet in, in what we're doing right now, you know, two jackasses, you know, <laughs> spending their free time talking uh, about movies. And then, you know, I mean, and great, I mean, it's great stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be doing it and, and things like Letterboxd and stuff. I, I mean, I'm addicted. I love it to death. And, and there's, I mean, there are more film aficionados out there now than there ever was. But unfortunately, because of that, um, it levels the playing field. And yeah, it, it makes it hard to, um, support yourself doing yeah i mean the the simple fact is you you look back through history and the criticism that was out there is is academic criticism it's people uh you know in 19th century the the critics are aristocrats they are they are rich people who are writing criticism in their spare time uh 
they're the only people who had access to education. You had to be rich to go to school in the 19th century. As, as education became more democratic, there was a larger class of people who were interested in art, in, in literature and music. And at the same time, there was a broad base of journalism to reach all of those people. And you still had elites who were able to write for a mass audience as those people are coming in. But as the media has democratized in the same way that, that uh, education has, those same people who were being, who were reading the reviews 50 years ago are now just as capable of writing them as actual professional critics. So, Some of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah, mean, yeah, there's, no, I, there's, I, I, there's good saying, and bad amateurs in the same way that there are good and bad professionals. I mean, it's, it's, it's democratized in the same way. And so I just, I think that this, this heyday that we have, this vision of like a film critic, like, a, like an Andrew Saris or a Roger Ebert, uh, you know, with a, you know, being able to carve out a, a 50-year career as, you know, a, a critic, reviewer, journalist is, is just a historical anomaly before the media had caught up to the democratization of education. I, I completely agree. And I, and I, and, you know, you bring, bring up the, you know, the academic angle of it. And I really feel that like, I, I feel like for, if people really want their voices to like, if they, if they want to distinguish themselves from, from this fray and all of that kind of stuff, I think people will need to, and I don't, once again, I don't think this is going to be sustainable financially, but um, to, to make a name for yourself, people are going to have to start. I actually think going back to longer forms of like, like writing books or something like that. Um, I think it's the only way to make a, a career in criticism outside of, of academia is in, in and God forbid who would want to do that is in, in publishing. And the reason is that there's, there's a higher standard for that. Like yep. to write a book, you yep. have to actually have something interesting to say to write and, a, a 250 word review of a multiplex release. You don't have to have anything interesting to say. And most critics and reviewers don't. Yeah. I mean, I just wrote 500 words on Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and I'm a total hack. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and like, because you you have to to pay money for the criticism. It has to be something that's that's good. That's going to tell you something that you you didn't already know. That has research that is not easily available to you. And and the people that are are able to do that will get compensated for it if you know the book that they write is good. You can't you can't like hack your way to a publishing career. Yeah. Unless, uh, you know, you're you Dan Brown or something. Yeah. Well, and then unfortunately, you know, <laughs> uh, cinema books, which would, which would be a great place to uh, nourish that kind of thing. Yeah. Well. Uh, you know, so it's all a death spiral. But, um, but no, uh, yeah, I agree. I think we're on the same page regarding that kind of stuff. And, and, and yeah, I, you know, going back to the dissolve, um, I, I was really excited about them when they came out and I, you know, there are people that wrote for them that, you know, a lot of the main figureheads there uh, and some other people that started freelancing over there um, that I'd followed on Letterboxd for a while, just as a, a fan of their stuff and, saw, and to see them getting bylines and stuff there in the last couple of months was really cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did 
I did notice that I've mentioned this before, a slight tonal shift over at the dissolve over the last year or so. And I actually, because of that shift, uh, and I think it may have been them actively trying to do at least a little bit to, to capture more eyeballs or something like that in mm -hmm. terms of, a uh, revenue sense, um, that actually turned me off. And then I, I did not read it habitually anymore. You know, I used to read it, you know, daily, uh, at least to see what was, you know, the new things published and stuff. Um, and the last six months or so, I really, uh, fell off on that. Um, so it's a catch 22, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, I, I don't know that like they had the podcast for a while. I listened to that a few times and then it went away and then it came back. I don't know. Well, I, you know, I, you know, I never would have thought that we would have outlasted them, though. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, this show pays all of our bills, so I mean, that's pretty. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, like, do do you feel guilty about being a, an amateur in a a profession that's dying largely because people like us are are amateurs? Um, do I feel guilty? I, I'd feel guilty, er. Like, I feel like what we're doing on this show or what I hope we're doing on this show is idiosyncratic enough to where we actually have our own little island. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like... You don't, we you don't were, think we we're, were, we're competing with them? I, if anybody's choosing us over them, there's, there's, there, that issue is, uh, not, has nothing to do with me. <laughs> well, well, people have s such limited time that, you know, every, every, you know, two hours that they listen to us every two weeks is two hours. They're not listening to a paid film critic. Right. Um, no, I, I don't, I don't feel guilty. If I felt guilty about it, I would probably stop doing it. Like, um, if I felt genuine guilt over it, like I feel that, while this is a I, more of a hobby for me, um, it's also a passionate one. And it's something that, it, you know, is the is, you know, as inarticulate as I am, it is uh, the best creative outlet that I currently have. And I think that that's worthwhile to me. And I hope it is to other people, um, even if it's just two people that go on to iTunes and write uh, pretty women and sad things, but you know, that's, that's fine. You know, so I, you know, I respect and admire and hope that, you know, people like Scott Tobias and Noel Murray and Tasha Robinson, uh, can, can manage to parlay their years of experience and their professionalism and their, uh, intelligence into some sort of, uh, you know, financially stable gig, I don't, uh, yeah, I think that it's just the nature of the beast. I think that they're going to have to pivot and, and change what they do slightly to, to make that happen. But do you feel guilty? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. But then, but I rationalize it away as just, you know, it's, it's inevitable. Well, yeah. I, like it's, it's, it's not like we, we, you and you I and did I not, not, did yeah. not drive the dissolve out of business. Like there are there are societal trends that are bigger than than any one website or or podcast. We are just you know part of the machine. If anything, film spotting drove them out of business. No, no. <laughs> here's the here's the here's the correlation. Here's the causation. Here, uh, two weeks ago, yeah. Scarecrow Video launched a blog, mm. and lo and behold. 
two weeks later, the dissolve folded. Yeah, uh, and well, and there's another example of a of a business that's in pivoting. in the in this field that has had to pivot to a non profit centered enterprise. And they're doing, you know, and and what's great is to see, you know, it it it's scary, um, but it's also really invigorating to see the different things that Scarecrow is doing with that, and and they're they're doing a lot of. They're branching out and trying some things. Some some of them are not, not going to work, and some of them are. Um, you know, I this isn't. I, I'm not turning this in, on to me, but um, you know, I've been able to collaborate with Scarecrow, um, as, as have my colleagues uh, across the street at the library on a couple of really interesting projects, and and we're we're going to continue to do that um, going forward. And I and in, in in a sense of just like making a, a community around movies and, and cinema. And um, I find that really interesting. And, and the stuff like the blog, which has been spearheaded by our friend Travis, mm-hmm. um, who, who is just a wonderful writer. Um, and I, any outlet that Travis gets, uh, I think, is a fantastic thing. So, it, you know, it, Very true. It's, it's great to see um, yeah, the, well, the, think... exciting, the exciting things that are possible, you know, when you kind of try and shake things up a little bit. Yeah, I think I think all of this kind of goes together, like like Scarecrow going nonprofits, you know, the the end of, of actual criticism as a career. Uh, uh, other stuff we talk about on the show, like uh, the the collapse of for profit art house theaters in favor of of nonprofits. Like it's there's this uh, there's this split between between art house repertory cinema between you know, like highbrow cinema stuff, like uh, like Scarecrow, like actual film criticism, like The Dissolve, and more mainstream multiplex film. Your new releases, your streaming Netflix, your uh, reviewers for Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. Uh, th- those two branches of cinema are becoming increasingly distinct, and the the half that we're on is the non monetary half. We're the classical music. We're the modern art. That's not going to make any money. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. And the rest is the. Wait, wait, is... wait! Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it! I take it back. That's what's got to go on iTunes. <laughs> we are the classical music. We are the ones that don't make any money. That right there, my friend, that is gold. But right. yeah, and I hear what you're saying. We've the... seen the same split in in other art forms over over the 20th century, and and film is just the latest one to go in that direction in this, the split between the popular and the, you know, quote unquote art. Right. And yeah, I think, I think it's all, it all ties together. It's all in the meets. Yeah. In, in the same way that you can't, there are no like for-profit opera companies out there. Right. There's, there's not for, there's not going to be for-profit video stores or, or for-profit repertory theaters. Right. Then it's it's a shame, but I I don't I think it's inevitable. Yeah, I I I agree. Um, but and and then but that's why you know it's good for people you know for for those of us that are willing to put in the time to do stupid stuff like what we're doing uh, on this show and Seattle Screen Scene. Um, to put to you know give a voice or or try and or try and um, get people to pay attention to those things um, so that they don't, you know, even nonprofits need people to go to them to survive. You know what I mean? Um, 
And so, yeah. Yep. So, up with people. <laughs> well, speaking of great people. Yes, let's talk about her. Uh, Ingrid Bergman is our person of the week. She's going to be, uh, well, she would if she was alive, uh, 100 years old later this summer. And she uh, was Swedish. She was. Uh, and she's, you know, like Omar Sharif, she's one of the greats. I I love Ingrid Bergman. I've loved her since the first time I saw her, and I'm sure it was a Hitchcock um, thing. And, you know, to not, be honest. Not Casablanca? No, I, 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 maybe that's, I still think it might've been a Hitchcock. Um, but yeah, I've loved her for so long and, um, she's such a, her, her career is so interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, like the trajectory and, and, and the passion that went into, you know, the decisions that she made, obviously, some you know romantically <laughs> tinged, uh, so to speak. Um, but yeah, she's she's one of a kind and just um, electric. You know, I, re- I I watched. Speaking of Hitchcock's, uh, at the library, I ran. I think I talked about this maybe uh, on the show, but I ran Notorious uh, last year around Latin, around this time. I think last August, um, which is one of my absolute favorite Hitchcock's and one of my favorite movies ever. And just watching her on that screen, you know, with Cary Grant, who I just mentioned also, uh, I, I was so giddy the whole movie, just like, just literally like twitching in my seat because what she does in that movie is just so stunning. You know, she's, she, she plays a drunk in the beginning and then she, you know, and then she has to, you know, she there's layers upon layers to her character because she has to infiltrate this Nazi ring and da 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 da. But and she brings this gravitas to it and and she swoons with Cary Grant and I mean it's a full blooded, well rounded performance in a movie that's ostensibly just kind of a thriller, you know, kind of popcorn fluffy thing. But it's obviously it's Hitchcock, so it's more than that. But um, she's a large part of what makes that movie work. And uh, you know, she never brought less than her a game in, in anything that I've seen. Is that, is that your favorite of her performances? Oh God, it might be. I love her so much in that movie. Mm-hmm. I love her in the beginning, you know, when she's drunk and she's making, making the drinks and stuff. And then she starts going for the, the, the drive in the car and she's like totally wasted. It's, uh, a, it's such a complex performance. It's like, amazing. Cause there's so much of that movie is going on behind behind the scenes and, and Cary Grant's performance is, is really good too. That it, it's a really great movie. Claude Rains too. Speaking of Casablanca, Claude Rains in Notorious, mm-hmm. man. Oh, that is a devastating, I mean, just devastating, but we're talking about Ingrid Berman. She's, she's great. I mean, I love her in so many things, you know, uh, there's Casablanca. Um, there's, I, I love her, her Rossellini movies. Uh, I was just about to say with George Sanders, Voyage in Italy and uh, and Stromboli and Europa Fifty One are all really good. Voyage in Italy, though, is that movie's so ahead of its time. Yeah, like I mean, it really. If that movie came out today, talk, it, talk about like the kind of 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 depth of of feeling and insight into human relationships that was that was lacking in in Bergman. Rossellini right. has that. All over the place, like 
there there is more in like a random 10 minute stretch of stromboli than all of summer interlude <laughs> uh yeah uh and and it's yeah and it's it's unflinching you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it's it's not it's it's it doesn't you know pretty things up like it's it's willing to go really dark and 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 you know using her in in these roles uh you know putting like putting your uh lover in the as, as the lead in voyage to italy you know uh right as that, their marriage is kind of falling apart and i mean that's that's some gutsy stuff yeah and which makes for you know um electric you know cinema so she's great what's your favorite performance of hers is, is it is it from one of those you know, it you made a really good case for Notorious. I hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it, it 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 might be that or 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 Voyage in Italy. Uh, God, she's she's so good all the time. In uh, and then you have something like uh, uh, Jean Renoir's uh, uh, Elena and Les Hommes, which is a totally different kind of performance. Like it's just like a this pure charming movie star type performance and when she's she's just like the prettiest girl in the world and everybody in the movie falls in love with her and you never doubt it at all because i mean she's ingrid bergman and it's just it's so light and fun in a way that you know something like under capricorn or or europa 51 is not i mean she's she was capable of of so much as an actress she's got the goods is she, you know, not to make this all about Hitchcock, but uh, is she your favorite "quote unquote" Hitchcock blonde? That's a, uh, that's a that's a murderer's row. I, I don't know that she fit Hitchcock as well as somebody like uh, like Grace Kelly or or Tippi Hedren or or even Kim Kim Novak, um, because she's got. She's kind of she's you know the the co-auteur of every movie that she's in because she's such a strong you know personality on screen and, and such just a powerful presence that there's there's always kind of this tension between the Bergman persona and what Hitchcock wants his woman to be, uh, whereas as Grace Kelly is kind of more fulfilling that kind of icy blondness than than Bergman is like Bergman is too natural too too real on her own. That's a very good point. I, I and, and not that not that you know that hurts the movie at all. Like it, it it's an essential make, part of Notorious right. and and Under Capricorn, but I, it's not, you know, it's not fully Hitchcock. Right. It's, no, I I, I that's yeah. a very. I mean, if that's your if if that's how you're judging it, then I I can see that. You know, um, if I separate myself and just and just judge performances i think she's my favorite but yeah i i, I think that's a very good point that grace uh, kelly or somebody like that joan fontaine i really like too and she has like kind of a similar uh vibe with hitchcock as as bergman does although a she has a very different pull. yeah she has a very different persona on her own but right yeah i think I, I would probably go with grace kelly not doris day i really like doris day in <laughs> The man who knew too much. I know I, you. I, I think I that's a really good movie, and I, she's really good in that. So I set you up for that. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, the motherland mm. uh, right now, and and pick our um, essential Swedish films. And you know, Sweden 
uh, is one of the powerhouses, you know, thanks to Janice Films and, you know, and Bergman, you know, uh, Ingmar Bergman. Bergman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it was it was one of like the first big film industries in the world with with uh, uh, Victor Seastrom. Going back to what was it, nineteen thirteen? Thirteen, yeah, yeah. That we watched uh, Ingeborg Holm. Uh, so you know, along with Germany and France and uh, the United States, it was like one of the first major film countries in the world. So that's a long history to choose yeah. from. Uh, is there is there a film that to you captures the heart and soul of 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 Sweden, or is there just one that you just really 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 like and you want to talk about? Yeah, I I, I will make no effort to discuss the heart and soul of Sweden because <laughs> I don't. You don't have a heart or a soul. I I I don't know Sweden. I mean, I I know it in in films. I know that they are there are blonde people there, and most of them are very pretty, despite what Roy Anderson would have us believe. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't have like a familial connection to Sweden. Like I, it's just another country to me. Uh, but the the movie I picked as the most uh, the essential Swedish film is uh, from Lucas Moodyson from 1998, and it's called Fucking Amal. Although you will find it uh, in America under the title Show Me Love, which is a terrible title and Awful. not nearly as interesting as Fucking Amal. Have you seen this film? I have not seen that. Mm. Um, I've I've heard of it, but uh, and I'd, I'd like to say you're not saying fucking them all. No, uh, Amal is a a small town in western Sweden, and the the girls who live there hate it and constantly refer to it as fucking Amal, in the same way that that we do about our hometowns when we are teenagers. <laughs> I know there were many times I referred to the fucking Spokane, and I still do whenever I see it in the news because it's usually bad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, obviously it was changed for American release because you know we can't have bad words in our titles. No, we uh, cannot. It's a it's you know it's a teenage romance story between two girls. One is is very pretty and very popular. The other is also pretty but very shy and and kind of weird. And it's it's very sweet. It's. Uh, it's uh, one of those movies that, unlike Summer Interlude, kind of captures the the feel of everyday life, and uh, in in you know not a particularly profound way, but one that's that's very moving. Yeah, like it's 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 got all of the stuff that I wanted to see in Summer Interlude. Uh. Yeah, I need to check that one out. Um, you, you because should. because my pick is from director Lucas Moodyson. <laughs> uh, and it's We Are the Best, which ah, is from a couple of years ago. ago yeah. uh, which is also about uh, you know young, you know, teenage, you know, girls. Um, this one is actually based on a graphic novel from uh Moodyson's wife Coco, um, about her kind of younger years when she started a punk band and stuff and um there are a lot of parallels with that, with uh, we are the best with kind of like Linda, 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 and kind of ca capturing that kind of uh, the essence of, of, of being in a band and, and, and also being a teenager and kind of just, you know, wasting time, so to speak. And um, it's such a great movie. And uh, I mean, it's, it's so much fun and, and, and 
it like you said it feels so with the other with uh, fucking Amal it feels so real and and you know we watch these girls who cannot play to save their lives I mean well two of them can't play to save their lives uh, but that's not going to stop them you know and they just start writing a song about what they're passionate about and what they're passionate about is that they fucking hate sports and so they're going to sing a song called hate the sport um, and they get you know um you know the 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 men uh around them you know don't think they can do it or don't think they're talented or whatever and try and you know be condescending to them and stuff and they just don't they don't give a shit and they're just willing to just rock out and have some fun and it's just it's such a great great movie i i have one small issue with it i don't care there's a there's a shoehorned in kind of jealousy angle with uh some boys that i i feel like was not necessary um in the movie uh, i wish they could have just spent more time uh stumbling their way through their song but that's small but uh, have you seen we are the best i have not uh, uh fucking mall is the only moodison film that i've seen so well we should swap yeah, I wonder. You know, I, I'm I'm getting the feeling that we should have watched a, a Lucas Moody film <laughs> we probably, this week. <laughs> we probably should have. Uh, uh, have you seen anything other than We Are the Best? No, I haven't. I, I've wanted to yeah. see uh, Lilia Forever and uh, Together. Together is a, a really highly acclaimed one. Yeah, um, and I want to say, you know, Sweden. Um, you know, it has this reputation. Of, of dourness and depression and, and all that stuff. And thanks and Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. And, and well, and that's the thing is, is uh, it's great to see movies like this. Um, we are the best. And, you know, last year, was it last year or the year before? Uh, I, which I, I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't bowled over by it, but uh, something like force majeure, which uh, is actually really funny. Um, I didn't see it. Uh, yeah. It like, you can kind of read it two ways. I think some people go into it and they think it's just about it. it it's this, you know, dramatic issue. Like, how would you handle this, you know, this revelation or whatever? Um, but it's actually really kind of funny in in a in a uh, kind of sly sense. Um, so it's nice to see a well-rounded portrait of uh, uh, Sweden, where they where they're willing to goof off and make punk rock songs and and funny movies and stuff so anyway let's let's talk about uh, uh probably another one of the more famous contemporary swedish directors um by hearing a clip yeah like the other famous contemporary swedish director right there's lucas moodyson and then there's roy anderson well, and ruben ostland and yeah right yeah and there's roy anderson so this is from uh, roy anderson's songs from the second floor I don't want to talk About things we've gone through Though it's hurting me Now it's history I've played all my cards And that's what you've done too Nothing more to say No more ace to play The winner takes it all The loser standing small Beside the victory That's her destiny I was in your arms Thinking I belonged there I figured it made sense 
So for, for many years, for decades now, uh, Roy Anderson has, by all accounts, been one of the greatest directors of commercials in the world. I am not uh, somebody who knows anything about commercials, but uh, he's apparently very good. He's also made some feature films. Uh, he made a couple in the 1970s, and then since 2000's Songs from the Second Floor, he's made one film every seven years. Uh, between the two of us, we have seen all three of his films, although the only one we have in common is the one we are about to talk about, Songs from the Second Floor. And if uh, the new one, Pigeon Set on a Branch, Reflecting on Existence, is anything like the first two, it it's is... It's exactly like the first two. It is a series of, of short scenes uh, with, filmed with a, almost always with a static camera, of very uh, weird, sad, fat, ugly Swedish people uh, dealing with the absurdities of capitalism and religion and modern life in very kind of surreal, deadpan ways. Uh, Songs on the Second Floor, if it's about anything, is about a, uh, a guy, what is his name, uh, Kali? Kali? Yeah. Who is a, a very overweight man who has burned down his store? I thought it was a bookstore. Wikipedia says it's a furniture company. It's a, yeah, it's a furniture store. Okay. He talks about his uh, his Chippendale couch or whatever that yeah. burned. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, he burned it down. <laughs> uh, it's unimportant. And he's trying to get the insurance money for it. And his oldest son is in an insane asylum because he wrote a lot of poetry. And his youngest son is a cab driver and a drunk. And society is falling apart all around them. Stockbrokers are marching through the street, flagellating each other. Uh, Callie takes up a business uh, in selling crucifixes, which uh, fails miserably. And yeah, I don't, I don't know how much more we need to get into. There's a lot of weird shit that happens. Yeah, I, and I mean, it's weird in like a really kind of depressing way. And not weird in a really kind of funny way. And I think that that's that's where part of my disconnect with Roy Anderson's work is is like I, I he's so well regarded um, critically mm-hmm. at least uh, you know uh, Pigeon sat on a branch you know is kind of one of the more uh, heralded films of this year coming out to art house theaters and people are like oh it's the new film from Roy Anderson and and I've and I've read you know a decent amount of of uh, reviews and and other kinds of criticism about his stuff and and almost everybody talks about how funny these movies are or at least that like it's black comedy or that you know it's rye or whatever and I don't think it is I like 
it's not weird enough to be funny. It's it's like it's. I I know that I have a gap when it comes to comedy when if it's like too dry or something like that. Um, and so the failing could come from me, but I don't see anything in this movie that is funny. Yeah, I I kind of see it. Uh, it was. Did you laugh? A little bit, but not as much as in You the Living. Like You the Living was the film I saw six years ago or so and i really loved it like it was it's one of my favorite movies of 2007 i think that is a great film and it's it's it seems uh more kind of encapsulating the totality of human existence like as i think he's trying to do also in songs from the second floor i think you the living does that better because there's more it it seems more romantic it seems more funny it seems more, it seems bigger and more generous than Songs from the Second Floor is. Songs from the Second Floor seemed kind of angry and bitter and repetitive in a, in a kind of uh, depressing way. Well, and whereas, I, whereas You the Living did not depress me at all. Like I, I came out watching You the Living like, you know, invigorated. Like this is cinema, yeah. And that is not my reaction to this one. It was more like, this is a movie, okay. Well, the worst the worst fault you can have, I mean, the worst, I think, adjective you can use for a movie is that it's boring. And 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 this one is, is boring. Like, there are long stretches of this. Like you said, it's repetitive. And, you know, I, I, I just watched A Pigeon Sat on a Branch, um, you know, in, in anticipation for the release here. Um, I got a screener and, and I have a, I, I have a feeling that Roy Anderson's work, or at least these three films, whichever one you see first might be your favorite. And like mm -hmm. I said, I haven't seen you the living, so I can't say for sure. But, um, while I didn't love pigeon sat on a branch, um, the, he definitely has a distinctive style and, and, um, and it's pretty, it's, it's interesting to, to see someone's different kind of, uh, conception of how to piece together a movie or whatever, and and I was definitely on that film's wavelength more um, than I was for this one. Where, yeah, this one it just kind of goes in circles with itself, and 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 you know, a large part of this movie is about a traffic jam um, that's just clogged. I mean, it's not even a traffic jam; it's like a parking lot. Yeah, well, that I mean, that's the kind of the stasis, the the stasis, the the stasis, stasis, the 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 inability to to go anywhere, and the repetition and kind of the circularity of it all is is you know thematic. But it's boring. And yeah, like, exactly. And, yeah, and and I and I you know and there's a difference between boring and boring, and there mm -hmm. I mean there like you said earlier when we were talking about. Um, I forget who you're referring to, but uh, there are movies that are slow and, and static and, and, and languid and just take their time or whatever and nothing happens. And Hey, I could get on board with that kind of stuff just fine. Um, but there's a, there's a boredom that sinks into a movie like this where, you know, by the time they sacrifice the little girl in the, uh, by throwing her off a cliff, you know uh, I'm just like, you know, Instead yeah, of, I wasn't going to mention that, but when that's you, fine. When, <laughs> wait, is that a spoiler? I guess. Oh, for crying out loud! I don't know. You can you spoil songs from the second floor? No, you cannot spoil songs from the second floor. Um, I, you know, I'm instead of being invigorated by the whole, you know, the absurdity of it all, 
uh, I'm kind of just like looking at my watch, like, okay, when is this thing going to wrap itself up here? Um, I, I, think, do I, think, I think part of the problem here is that none of the, the characters we meet, meet are the least bit likable. Like, they're all just terrible, terrible humans. And that was not the case in You the Living. Like, you, you, you see these people in Songs on the Second Floor, and they're ugly, and their, their behavior is ugly. But in You the Living, they're, they're ugly, but you like them. You know, you kind of see the humanity in them and, and, you know, it's like this, you know, everyone is beautiful in their own way kind of thing. Whereas with songs of the second floor, it's like everyone is ugly in their own way. And, and that is not as compelling a, a film to me. Yeah. The same thing happens in Pigeon where it follows these two novelty salesmen. They sell, you know, plastic vampire fangs and stuff like that. And they have this kind of antagonistic relationship um, and at least the, that's a through line where they're kind of, you know, these kind of bumbling idiots and, mm-hmm. um, and that's, I don't want to say that's enough, but that, that's something, uh, uh, but here the, the characters are also like, so they, they kind of blend together. There are a lot, like the, there are a lot of overweight, uh, men sitting on the edges of beds fretting about their existence in this movie. And I kind of lose track of who's who after a while because it's all, there's, there's very little distinguishing them. Yeah. And the, and the one character, and then, you know, the few characters that are distinct are like the, the hundred year old, 101 year old uh, general who turns out to be a Nazi. Right. Or like the little girl who uh, is lectured about how many more books all the old people have read than her and saw how they know more than her. And then they throw her off a cliff well, and this is another problem with that I've had with his with the two movies I've seen of his is that, um, like I do appreciate that he tries to. These are, on the surface, these are all kind of just absurdist, you know, vignettes of just them, um, you know, j- just like a five minute scene of something absurd happening or something depressing happening. But he does kind of try and weave like a through line w- by bringing characters back around and stuff. Mm-hmm. But a problem that I have with both of the films that I've seen is that then there are these kind of scenes that don't really thematically or, or narratively or whatever you want to say. They don't connect. totally interconnect. It's they like... don't, they don't interconnect. Like you get the, the Nazi guy, but that doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. It's not, it's not fully integrated in, into the network. Like I, I, I don't recall you the living enough to to know if that is not a flaw of that film uh i do think that uh, a lot of the the uh the tableau in the film because because they're all but for one shot they're all static shots um i do think that it's really beautifully composed and he has just like an amazing eye for for detail in a frame and there's all of these you know their compositions in depth like you're looking down a hallway and it just kind of goes on to to infinity or you have like this this big space and there's always something going on in the background that is as interesting if not more interesting than than what is going on on screen or there's like an on-screen sound and you spin like the first three minutes of the shot trying to figure out what the sound is and then you see that it's like the the stockbrokers acting like you know the the flagellating monks in in seventh seal or something yeah, that that's absolutely true. He is a master uh, in terms of that compositional framing. He always finds the best angle for every shot, and mm-hmm. and there's a reason that the camera doesn't move. Um, 
because like you said things come out of the the background and 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 you know thing things come into the frame um and so absolutely um fantastic with that and i also want to say that he's he's very good at using large crowds like there's mm -hmm. Several times in this movie, like you said, the the stockbrokers, you know, uh, beating themselves or beating each other was other walking down the street or that scene where they throw the girl off the cliff. There's a huge group of people along this hillside yeah. um, watching that, and then there's a scene of all of these people pushing these giant things of luggage through this airport, and it seems to go on to infinity, um, and they're all like synchronized, and and so those two elements are superb i absolutely but if you can't if you don't have anything interesting or unique to say using those things then it's just like you said it, then it's kind of just like a 90 minute commercial you know well, you I, might don't, as well I don't know that it's not interesting or unique i mean i think it's definitely unique it's just it's a little no i'm saying what he, repetitive what i'm saying is what he's what he's saying to me is not unique. Like the way he's doing it's unique, but I, I mean, I don't think there's any real insights into capitalism or, uh, you know, the no, dawn of, yeah. I mean, I know, and that's where the humor is missing. Like if, if it was funnier, right. like, because there's, there's like the, the joke with the, uh, the economists in the meeting and they're trying to figure out what's going on because there's clearly an, an apocalypse afoot and everyone is like handing around this crystal ball that they're looking at. Like that, that's funny. It, it goes on for a long time, but you know what? It's it's funny. If there was more of that in the movie, or just, I I feel like it's 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 not that it's not funny enough, as it's like it's not humane enough. Like I feel like this is the apocalypse, and and you the living is like after the apocalypse when everyone has like come to terms with the absurdity of life and is and is dealing with it a lot better than they are in songs from the second floor. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know what's going on in in the pigeon movie. Like, is there an apocalypse in that one too? Is the world ending? Has it ended already? Uh, it's it. Yeah, the yeah, it's kind of post-apocalyptic, I guess you could say. There's, yeah. the, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, that one, you know, I, I don't want to speak too much about it, obviously, because you haven't seen it. And, you know, mm -hmm. but um, that one actually builds to kind of an, a really, I don't want to say shocking, but it actually, it, it got to a crescendo that kind of jolted me. There's one scene in particular that um, is very incendiary uh and that is a good word for it I, without spoiling things um that that uh i kind of that's guy kind of jolted me awake and was like oh this there's something there's something going on here and and it was it was beautiful and tragic and ugly and all these kind of kind of contradictory things happening all at once that actually was like oh this is actually something that I can grasp onto. Um, but yeah, it's, so it has, it has higher highs in that movie, but it is for the most part, more of the same that you would get in something like this. Okay. So of, uh, of the two movies we watched this week, both of which we had, uh, very mixed reactions to which, uh, which did you prefer and which would you watch the second time? I prefer, 
I, which I, which I, do you think is the better movie and which would you rather watch again? Those are two separate questions. <laughs> I know, and that's why I'm trying to figure out my answer. I preferred uh, The Bergman by, by uh, you know, a narrow lead. And, and it was for those things that I mentioned that I really did enjoy the stuff in the beginning um, where it feels like a different movie <laughs> than what it is. And, and uh, those kind of side characters that uh, had kind of quippy things that I was like, oh, okay, we got a rhythm going on here. This is kind of, dare I say, maybe screwballish or something like that. <laughs> um, unfortunately, then the rug is pulled out from under me and then it becomes very spiteful and... Um, uh, and kind of angry um, or, or anger inducing. Um, I think I might be able to watch songs from the second floor again if I approach it from like the perspective of like, you know, when you go to like an art installation mm. and, and there's like a, an absurdist thing on the screen and, you know, you know that you're not looking for narrative. You're just like looking at some weird shit. Right. I'm okay with that in, in the right context. You know what I mean? So I might watch this one again. Mm. How about you? Uh, I think the other way around on both of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think, Fair enough. I think songs from the second floor is, is, is probably the better movie. I think uh, Anderson is a more interesting filmmaker than Bergman in, in just about every way. But I think I would rather watch uh, my Britt Nielsen again in the movie <laughs> the pretty lady does it for you this time huh? yep <laughs> because well, i'm a terrible person well let's you know speaking of uh pretty ladies and uh bearded chaps mm. let's uh hear another abba song here uh this is uh tying in with me recently watching uh bill and ted's excellent adventure for like the 19th time and also uh, the apocalypse and the apocalypse uh here's waterloo <laughs>
So speaking of Swedish film, uh, you know what I really want to happen? If I if I was a producer, if I had, I, I wouldn't need a huge budget, but a few million dollars. You know what I would do, Sean? No. Uh, so Will Ferrell uh, has has been making a couple of these movies that are they're not even like parodies. They're not. They're just kind of like pastiches or or kind of just kind of the humor is in how straight they play the homage to these kind of genre films like Casa de Mi Padre, um, which, you know, was all in Spanish, even though Will Ferrell doesn't speak Spanish. Um, and then he just recently did that Lifetime movie uh, with, um, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, Kristen Wiig, uh, A Deadly Adoption, where it, yeah, where it's not really a spoof. You know what I mean? I, if I was a producer, I'd, I'd get together with him and, and the guy that wrote, I think he wrote both of those movies, and I'd make a, a Swedish version of the summer camp classic Meatballs, mm. where it would be shot for shot. like Swedish they, Meatballs. Yeah. Whole th- but it, it, that's the, and the whole joke is just that it's called Swedish Meatballs. That's prob- <laughs> it's probably racist, but okay. <laughs> I would see that movie. Anyway, next time on the show, uh, coming to town here, uh, we talked about it, or you talked about it during the SIF uh, recap, um, but restorations of Satyajit Ray's um, trilogy. Uh, the Apu trilogy. The Apu trilogy. Why can't I think of names right all of, all of a sudden? The Apu trilogy is coming to town uh, in its restoration for, for an engagement at SIF. Uh, which I'm very excited about because, as I mentioned before, I did miss the screening at, at uh, the film festival. And so we're going to be talking about, uh, since we've already done a Ray film, we did the chess players way, 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 way back. We're going to uh, do some other Ray films. We're going to do some other Ray films, uh, meaning we're going to do Roger Corman's The Man with the X-Ray Eyes, uh, starring Ray Milland, um, mm. which is a nice little tie-in. Yeah, and uh, totally planned. Totally planned. And Eric Romer's uh, The Green Ray, which you want to know a little coincidence with that film, John? Uh, It's about a summer vacation? No. It was released on Ingrid Bergman's birthday, August 29th, 1986. (laughs) Well, how about that? Uh, Yes. And it was my (laughs) fifth birthday. So so that'll be the next time on the show. And uh, it should be a lot of fun. that's a, that's a good double feature, I think. Yeah, if, I think I think that'll go a lot better than this week did. <laughs> uh, I have high hopes. Yeah. Well, speaking of repertory stuff, uh, the BAM Cinematheque is going to be doing uh, a series called, they're calling uh, Indie 80s. or uh, 80, I have seen the series. It is amazing. It's pretty incredible. Um, I mean, there it's it starts uh, July seventeenth and runs through the rest of the summer, um, and it's just chock full of of, of films. Um, Sherman's March is in there. Uh, previous George Sanders show uh, film Mate One is on there. Uh, Spinal Tap is there. I mean, it's just all kinds of great Blue Velvet. Uh, but what I want to recommend. Uh, it's the second film in the series, uh, and we've talked about it on the show uh, several times, uh, is Jim Jarmusch's film Stranger Than Paradise, which plays July 18th, uh, two shows, 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. And the reason I, I want to single this one out is I just finished season four of Louis, uh, mm-hmm. Louis C.K.'s show on oh, FX. Right, with Esther Belant. With uh, Yeah, and uh, she, you know, she's only acted in like, 
five things and she mm-hmm. like didn't hasn't acted for like 20 years and then all of a sudden she pops up on louis for like a six episode arc and she's fantastic and so uh it made me think of her and then there she's playing she's going to be in strangers in paradise so but yeah this whole series is just going to be absolutely nuts uh, at the bam cinematheque well, uh, another amazing series is going on, is starting actually right now as we speak at the UCLA Film and Television Archive, is a, uh, a Frank Borzegi series. It's running now through the end of September, and they're playing like 20 of his movies, including a bunch that they have restored there at the archive, and they're doing like a, a different double feature, you know, from now until... September 20th. Uh, so the one the one coming up uh, soon is on uh, July 17th is uh, Street Angel and Lilium. Uh, Lilium I haven't seen, but Street Angel is pretty amazing. It's with, uh, it's one of his uh, films with uh, Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell, like, uh, like Seventh Heaven. It's actually a little better than Seventh Heaven. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's got some similarities to La Strada. Nice. Which is a film that, that you like. Uh, Lilium is a movie that I haven't seen. It's, it's based on the same play that the, uh, that the musical Carousel is based on. I've only seen the, the Fritz Lang version of it. And I think the Borzegi film was, has only been available on DVD as like an unadvertised special feature on the version of the Fritz Lang version. Or something weird like that. Just but, buried, huh? Yeah, just just buried. That one also stars uh, uh, Charles Farrell, who is who is terrific. But they're playing, you know, just a ton of his great movies uh, over the next few months, like Man's Castle, Little Man, What Now, No Greater Glory, uh, Three Comrades in the Mortal Storm, Moonrise. Are do you know Borzegi at all? We should nope. we should do a Borzegi sometime on the show because he is. Uh, he is one of the greats, and he is not talked about enough. Yeah, I and and as as usual, someone that I've wanted to dive into more, uh, and I, I just haven't had an opportunity. So, uh, too bad I am seventeen hours away by car from this wonderful thing. But I think it would take a lot longer than seventeen hours to drive to Los Angeles. You see it? No, it takes like twelve hours to get to San. Well, it would maybe probably... have maybe the way you drive. Yay! License to drive. <laughs> I'm Corey Haim, yeah. or Feldman. Wait, no, Corey Haim. Yeah, Corey Haim. He's the one that gets the license. You know who's in that movie? Carol Kane. I love Carol Kane. You know who's in that movie? Heather Graham. Boom. Yeah. Heather Graham's in everything. Yeah. She's so. great. We should do a Heather Graham show. I'm down. Heather Graham and Frank Borzegi. <laughs> I'm sure there's a tie-in there somewhere. Uh, you can find us online at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at geosandershow. Uh, we have an email address, thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com, and we write at seattlescreenscene.com, where we actually just started getting uh, new contributions uh, from someone that actually uh, knows how to use the English language um, <laughs> On on our on our little website there, uh, Melissa's joined us, which is uh, fantastic, uh, and I I'm really happy that that happened because now I can quit and uh, just watch baseball. It's it's nice to have somebody a voice that is not us <laughs> on that website because yes. frankly I I don't know about you but I am sick of us. I'm pretty sick of us too. Yeah. You know what I'm who I'm not sick of though. George Sanders. George freaking Sanders. Yeah. So let's, as we do every time on this show, let's close it out with George. Take us away. Sing us to sleep. <laughs> <laughs>
a song from an Ingrid Bergman film. That's right. Yeah. Synergy. Mm-hmm. 